Very good morning, good afternoon, wherever in the world you're listening to this podcast from. You're very welcome to the Sales Leaders Podcast. And I'm joined today by the Vice President of Sales, EMEA, at Imparticle. Rob Murphy, you're very welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here, Paul. Thanks for having me. Pleasure's all mine, Rob. Uh, Rob, I, I, I consensus an Irish accent. You're based in London. Um, is it a Dublin accent? It is a Dublin accent. Dublin area? So, yes, Clontarf originally. Okay. Uh, grew up there and then about yeah. five years ago okay. moved across to, uh, to London. Okay. Um, being a country boy myself, what, what, what was it like growing up in, in Clontarf? Uh, I loved it there. I mean, I originally was in Griffith Avenue for about uh, 12 years or so, and then uh, we moved to Clontarf. So, I mean, I love mm. being by the sea. Um, always very calming mm. going out for runs. Um, I mean, really through all different types of weather uh, throughout the year down there. So it's something I definitely miss about living there. Yeah, I was going to say that there's not too much sea in London where you just disappear down one rabbit hole and then pop up and you're just looking around and it's more concrete. Yeah, it's, uh, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's a wonderful city, though. It's one of my favorite cities uh, on the planet. Uh, what, what brought you to London? Yeah, so at the time I was working for Salesforce um, based out of Sandyford in Ireland. And um, the sector I was covering was mm. basically financial services customers, of which all of them were pretty much in London. So I was traveling over almost on a, on a weekly basis. Um, so I got pretty tired of doing all the flying back and forth. And it kind of felt like you were in London, but not in London because you weren't really there to enjoy it over the weekend. So mm. I decided uh, just to um, take a bit of a gamble and go move and see how I feel. Um, and I've been here ever since. Enjoying it? Yes. No, I really enjoy it. I mean, there's, uh, there's so much to do. I've met my wife here as well. Um, so, yeah, just enjoying our, our life that we've made for ourselves here. You're screwed. That's it. That's it. I've got to be carrying you out of a box now in London. That's it. Yeah. Game well, over. Well, the, cha- the challenge is she's actually uh, American <laughs> in New York. So who knows where we'll end up. Oh, well, okay, that's, well, there's an adventure there somewhere because you are eventually going back to New York. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's something to look forward to. I think New York is cool. <laughs> um, tell me, were you, were you, because I know you've been in sales for quite a while. Did I see somewhere that you started out as an analyst? Yeah, it was actually a, oh, a bit confusing of an unusual, you with somebody else. No, that's, that's exactly right. A bit of an unusual path in. So actually, prior to that, I, I worked in hospitality briefly um and mm. it kind of got to a point where I, I realized it wasn't going to be able to uh, really give me the life that i wanted to have and like through that work so i decided uh, to explore different areas and and this kind of analyst type role came up at mm. ibm which which essentially was like more like a sales ops type role um so that's where i joined and that's kind mm. of where i got the first mm. exposure uh to what it might be like to work in sales because historically it was never really a career that i had uh, really considered. Um, so yeah, I was getting exposed, mm. and I was pretty fascinated earlier on. Early on, in terms of like how the team were just using technology, professional services to really solve challenging business problems. So uh, I kind of got the bug back then, and mm. I've kind of had it ever since. Mm. I'm wondering because I, I was in pre-sales before I got into sales, and and pre, the pre-sales thing became because I had a, I was I had a technical background. And then I looked over at sales and it looked so easy from the outside. I'm just wondering if you had that same experience that you went, I could do that. And then you try it and 
it's not so easy. Yeah, it was actually a funny story. So when I joined, it was like a sales operations role. I was fascinated. I uh, probably still a little bit naive. I went to my managers and I was like, you know what, this operation role is great, but I actually think I really want to be on the sales team. And they said, thank you for your interest, but you have got like another 10 months left on your contract. So whilst I didn't get my wish, I did get yeah. the buy-in from them though, to spend as much time with the sales team as possible, uh, as long as I continued to uh, deliver the deliverables I had on a weekly basis. Um, but mm. a lot of those de deliverables are actually quite repetitive tasks, like insights, reporting, things like that. So I thought like there must be, there has to be a better way of doing this. So I actually learned uh, like how to sort of write macros, learned how to do some very basic code and essentially automated about 80% of my job, uh, which meant then that I got to spend all that time with the sales team who were like, like I'm very, very grateful for. They kind of took me under their wing. They brought me along to discovery calls, workshops, negotiation calls. So I had like almost like a nine month crash course in how to uh, work at IBM, how to sell the, mm. the products and services that we offered. And then eventually when a, a role did come up, I moved straight into that, uh, into that sales role. That's a wonderful way to get into sales. That, and it was really good of them to do that. But uh, yeah, I guess it's one of the benefits of a company like IBM where, where you, yeah, there is that ability to do that. But uh, yeah, pre-sales was something similar for me because you were going on calls with because you were in pre-sales. So you, you did get some insight into that as well. Um, I'm curious because you said something there about you know, when you're in the analyst role, there was, there was an itch that wasn't scratched uh, or that needed to be scratched. And you were very deliberate about that, about getting into that. Was there anything in your younger years that might have been a clue to the fact that this was something that was in your future sales, in other words? Yeah, I mean, I kind of did some of the, the classic things as a child, like going around trying to mow people's lawns, watch people's cars. Kind of my father definitely always encouraged me to have like an entrepreneurial mindset early on. And that coupled mm. with, uh, I also did a, you know, played a huge amount of sport growing up as well. Um, so I felt like the entrepreneurial plus the competitive mindset of sport just kind of almost drew me naturally into a, a sales type role. That is interesting, isn't it? I think it's one of the a great gifts, one of the biggest gifts you can give a child in terms of their development is to make them knock on doors and, and ask and learn how to take the rejection from some and the joy of succeeding with others. I think it sets them up nicely because no matter what place you're going to be in life, even if you're in a technical role, there's going to be those challenges later on in life where you've got to ask and not fear the rejection. Um, so, so kudos. Um, what, what were some of your motivations growing up? Um, I, I kind of really was inspired by people who just built really successful businesses. Um, so really like growing up, um, I was like, I, I really would like to do that at some point, but I didn't really necessarily understand, understand how I would do that or what would be the path I could follow to do mm. that. Um, it was actually like a little bit later on in my career, like I'd done four years at IBM, was very fortunate. I went through some great training there. Uh, met some great people um, and that's when I kind of moved on a little bit and I heard uh, firsthand from David Dempsey who kind of was one of the 
founding three people of Salesforce in, in EMEA and kind of heard his story about how he had gone and, you know, kind of emailed Mark Benioff, thought it was a, you know, a good opportunity to expand into the European region. And, uh, you know, they just went on this incredible journey together, um, you know, really starting from the basics and just building out, I mean, what Salesforce is today is just, uh, you know, huge in EMEA. So, mm. yeah, it was just, uh, I started to see then, okay, like, tech seems to be a way of doing this uh so yeah that's why i kind of mm. was like oh this is this is super interesting and maybe there's like lots of other companies which of course ireland's done very well from the foreign direct investment uh into tech in particular so mm. yeah that's kind of what uh what i was inspired by like what if you know the company that we're working at in particle what if we can bring it and, and grow it to be as uh, as big as a, as a salesforce in the future mm. In terms of what you're doing currently, what's giving you the greatest sense of satisfaction? Uh, I think uh, I look at satisfaction on uh, you know several different levels. Like I do a do a quarterly life review um, and really evaluate my life on all different aspects. So my career, my mm. um, you know my marriage, my personal relationships, personal development, and really just like take the opportunity once a quarter to really just reflect on kind of where I'm at and then where I want to go to. So some of the things like it's always very deliberate mm. what I'm driving towards in terms of what's giving me the most, um, mm. uh, you know, what's mm. keeping me motivated. And I think we've done such a great job and the team's done such a great job in EMEA so far. We've built out from Particle. It's just like, how do we just continue to grow and learn together and continue to uh, really build the business out to, uh, you know, hopefully as big as yeah. we can, as possible and successful as we can make it. Yeah. I talked to you about the professional side in a moment. I want to go back more. You said about the, the quarterly life plan. I'm very interested in that. Uh, I'd like you to talk me through the process. And what I mean by that is, do you go somewhere on your own? Is it something you do at home? Is it something you do collaboratively with others? And then what are the various elements and what are you looking for in those? And then what's the output of the process? Yeah, I think uh, it's usually um, take myself out of the current environment. Um, I've actually found doing it in airports weirdly. Now the travel's back open, you've got a lot of dead time. Uh, so it's often a good time mm -hmm. to just pull out a journal and uh, just start to take stock of where you're at. So uh, I try and keep the format similar. Uh, so I'll, I'll basically do a, I think, you know, almost like the pie of life. You draw a circle, you divide it into different segments. Like everybody has the exact same amount of time as mm -hmm. everybody else. It's just about how you spend it. Um, then I'll just go through and, and kind of rank myself on a scale of one to 10 on all of the different aspects. So, you know, how do I feel I'm doing professionally? How do I feel I'm doing, you know, in my own, uh, relationships in personal like development in other things that I find that are fun. Like am I, where am I at on all of those different aspects and basically give you a, a zero to 10 score mm. kind of kind of draw mm. so that doesn't become a circle right there's always going to be bits that you're down on and other bits that you're really good on and then just like deep dive into each one of those um to really just try and decide like if it's great and it's 10 out of 10 like fantastic like what are the things that are actually causing it to be great and what are the things i can continue doing mm. if it's not where i want it to be then like what is the reason that it's not there and what are some of the things i could do over the next 90 days to actually try and rectify that the, in terms of who I do it with, I have historically done it just uh, by myself, but uh, I've recently I've also started doing it, uh, which has been fun with my wife. Um, so that's always been a, an interesting conversation, but 
again, it just means that everyone's like kind of knows where we're at, what are the things that are important that we want to be doing more of, and how do we go and actually go and do that. Do you go down the road of vision boards? Uh, not not so much vision boards. I just try and keep it. I'm a very data driven person, so I like to have like you know be able to quantify how I'm feeling, um, and then you know ultimately be able to measure like am I making progress or or not? Okay, I'd like to go just a little bit deeper in that because to me the the what I'm curious about is the data bit, which is very subjective in itself, mm-hmm. but looking at and saying, how do I feel, which is very subjective and open to all sorts of, you know, the mood you're in in the moment, what happened to you that morning, subconscious influences that might affect how you see things. Um, and I'm wondering how, is that something you even think about or worry about and take into account? Or is it just, look, at the moment, here's how I feel and that's what's important? Um, yeah, it's like, it's a, it's a good call out. I think what I do is I kind of journal pretty frequently. So when I sit down to do that, I'll kind of have a quick flick through all of the last, like, you know, 90 days worth of entries. Sometimes there's, you know, lots, sometimes there's not as much. I just try and do a quick recap. So it, it almost removes the, like, oh, I spilled a coffee on myself this morning and I feel terrible uh, type of influence on the score that I might have. Tell me about something or how you might have changed something, either direction or gained a, a, a really important insight that's influenced your thinking as a result of that process? Yeah, I mean, there's been, there's been several things, like some things are quick fixes. So like, am I spending enough time with my family at home in Ireland? For example, it's like, well, you know, how do I score myself there? Should I spend more time there? So if it's a yes, mm-hmm. that's easy, right? Just got to book more flights, plan out in advance to go back and see them. Mm. But like, there's been other things that like, you know, when I look at um, things, um, you know, it could even be like fitness related, like how am I feeling health wise? So like, you know, a lot of that's just around habit. Like once we create good habits, it's kind mm. of relatively easy. You get up in the morning, you, mm. you go work out, you eat well, etc. So I think like there's been some things that are like quick fixes, like hey, just book more flights, it's easy. Uh, other things like how do I create a very conscious uh, habit? And again, just starting to break things into small chunks. So if I wanted to go run a marathon or something like that, how do I just, when I start and embark on that journey, just like, what are the first like two weeks look like? And just have like very relentless Mm. focus on those first two weeks, just get the reps Mm. in. And then as you start to build momentum, the habit starts to build. um, And then it just gets uh, a lot easier from there. I'm very interested in the whole idea of journaling. I've, I've dipped in and out of myself many times, um, and I've always found it beneficial, but struggle to make it a habit. And, and I'm just wondering, I don't know if that's personality driven or something else, but certainly beneficial. And I know certainly when I started my first working with Sandler, like that was something that was beaten into us, like journal, journal, journal every day and get a sense of, of why I was asking about the subjective versus objective was uh, one of the things uh, we were taught was to uh, rate ourselves both in terms of the, the, our identity, our role, our, our, our sense of ourself in the world, which is a very subjective thing versus how did I do, which is 
it tends to be more objective. And the interesting thing was, and I remember Sander talking about this, and now I never met the man, but it was on a recording. And he was talking about, you know, the, the very day that you feel bad and, and you think you're having a bad day, maybe the day you sowed a seed with a prospect that 30 days later, you're out having a productive conversation. And you go back and you look at your journal and you went, you know, you're having a bad day that day, but hang on a second. This was the day it all started. And, and it, I like that idea because it teaches you then to not judge how you, how you feel about yourself by what kind of a day you're having and to kind of isolate the, the, the two, that you can have a bad day from a productive point of view, but it doesn't mean you're a bad human. And yeah. I'm just wondering if, 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 if that's part of your, your thinking as the, the process or what you're trying to get out of it as well. Yeah, I think um, the other thing is like, really, like there are usually a lot of wins every day that you can just gloss over and they, they could be small wins, but like just taking the time to like really like go like review. So to your point about making a habit, I've read uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear. And one of his biggest recommendations was like, you have to make it it's like so obvious that you have to do it. So like first thing I get up in the morning, make my bed, <laughs> I put my journal on my pillow. So when I go to bed at night, it's like, it's literally there. There's like no excuses. It reminds me, it's very obvious. I just have to go and uh, just journal. Um, but yeah, it's like a good way of recapping the day. What were the wins? Because there are wins that just pass us by that we need to sometimes shine a light on. And then all those wins just build to momentum. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how I make it a daily habit. Talk to me a little bit about the leadership journey. So going from, I know, I think it was the last sales role, was, role you were in, was that Salesforce or there was one after that? And then you got into a uh, management role. And, and I want to spend a little bit of time on that transition because it's often the most difficult one. And for people listening to this who are facing that, um, I'd like to get a sense of some of the obstacles you faced, both in yourself and working with others that you had to overcome. Yeah, I think um, it was interesting because at the end of um, my time at Salesforce, I was a, a former SVP of global sales. Because um, like what I wanted to do was get into startups and help startups scale out their businesses in EMEA. Um, and a good, like the first time I had experience of that was in, in Salesforce. There was an acquisition I worked for called Pardot. Um, the head of sales at Pardot then subsequently left, went to Spread Social. And I kind of messaged him kind of wanting to see if he was expanding out into Europe anytime soon. So after a while, I ended up joining as the first person in um, EMEA for Spread Social. So like I went from this huge environment at Salesforce, lots of resources to like literally in my flat in London, as like, this is the beginning of this new journey. Um, so we had like, I would say like a, an enterprise like squad that we built up. So as myself, we had an SE, a customer success manager, um, and a few other resources that really helped us build that enterprise business out. So I think um, taking that experience through to um, through to Lytics and now through to Unparticle, like it is a difficult transition to make because when you're a seller, you're like, you're kind of like quarterbacking the deals. You're kind of in, in control of everything, right? You've got your playbook, you've got your resources, you know what shots you need to call. Um, and you kind of need to go from that position of being in control of everything almost to having to trust your team to be in control of everything. 
uh, and you're almost like a little bit removed, but you have to build a team up. So I think the, one of the hardest things that I struggled with at the beginning was like, um, just like wanting to be deeply involved with everything. Like I, I quickly found that like the, you know, you're just running out of hours in the day to do this across the sales team. Um, and it's not really being productive. And ultimately I came to the conclusion that like, you know, if we want to go fast, like, sure, I can try and do as much as I can uh, with the team and just be all over it myself. But at some point we're going to run out of steam, but if we want to go far, we got to build the team up. We got to enable them and we got to empower them uh, to really go on to be the next uh, set of leaders. So uh, that's probably some advice. I think the, the transition, um, you're going to have lots of control and then you're going to have to be trusting others to uh, ultimately execute. Um, and yeah, I think maybe one other one, which is a, I mean, it's a pretty famous Nelson Mandela quote, but like, listen, listen first and speak last. So like really get all the viewpoints in the room. Um, and that really will help inform your decision-making process and should help you, uh, ultimately deliver the best outcomes. Hmm. I'm wondering what you learned about yourself in coming through that transition. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's things I, I knew there's things I didn't know. And then there's probably lots of things I didn't know. I didn't know. So again, I think it's just being mm. a, a constant student, like always wanting to learn. Um, uh, so I think, yeah, that's like, I remember I, I, when I did my masters, there was like one article, which was, uh, that we read was kind of like the, the incomplete leader. And it kind of talked about the fact that you will never really become an expert of everything, nor should you ever really strive to be an expert on everything. There's mm. always going to be things you don't know. So I think like actually getting comfortable with that, um, was that something I definitely mm. learned about myself because I I'd kind of approach it from like, no, I want to know everything. Um, and I want to be able to be an expert mm. and help out when any question that comes up, but actually, in fact, that's, probably misguided uh so i learned um mm. through the process that like it's actually again building that building that team and empowering the team and, and being able to bring in the experts uh in certain areas as you as you need to i like that it, it's what it sounds or feels like to me is that instead of learning how to answer the questions it's what questions should i be asking because if you know those, then you, there's always somebody else can answer them. But you're saying they're the experts. It's like the, uh, I think it was Ford or somebody like that, of Ford Motor Company. He had, he, legend has it, and I might have the number wrong, that he had five buttons on his desk. And uh, somebody asked him about, you know, how do you manage all this? And he says, this is how, and he presses one button and head of finance comes in and presses another button head of sales comes in and he says these are the experts and he just now i'm i'm sure i've i've taken license with that i'm sure somebody else has as well but the philosophy behind it always stuck with me that it's not necessary that the smartest person in the room is the one who knows other people are smarter amen um, in given topics right yeah yeah and so tell me what's where would you like to take your career? What would you like to, what's the trajectory in your own mind? Yeah, at the moment I'm in, I think, um, 
we're still at the early stages of um, you know, our plan that we had with M Particle. So I joined and been here about two years. Mm. So uh, you know, we put a strategy mm. in place of where we wanted to take the business. So really, I'm just excited to uh, continue that journey and really grow out from there. And I think, mm. you know, in the in the future, like who knows what will happen. Um, you know, mm. there's mm. it's kind of an interesting uh, role to be in now where we're seeing like kind of VP sales and Mia. Um, maybe there's like people are transitioning into GM roles, transitioning into C-level roles from there. And other people um, even transitioning out into completely different fields like uh, VC to ultimately help companies grow and scale their businesses uh, or help them mm. grow out in EMEA. So I think I think what's exciting is that like the skill set that I'm really focused on building out is is transferable um, to lots of different companies, lots of different industries. And really for me, it's about uh, like we set out the plan and it's really about you know the excitement and the journey of going mm. on that plan and getting to the getting to the stage that we want to be at. Um, together as, as a team and we kind of set it we set the strategy two years ago like you know in in four years time we're going to sit around a room and we're going to say like we built this together and that's going to be great mm. to have gone on that journey and, and done that all together tell me something about yourself rob that probably nobody you work with knows about you an experience you've had maybe somebody you've met something you've done hobby pastime work it doesn't matter just something you feel that uh you you enjoyed or that was surprising or interesting to you that maybe nobody knows about you i mean i don't know if this counts but i did i did break my finger in three places and snap my tendons playing a, a non-contact sport uh despite having played uh, gaelic football and hurling for like 15 years and never had hand injuries um so that that was that was, was that tag fun. rugby by any chance it was indeed tag rugby yeah yeah there are more injuries come from tag rugby than any other sport that i know of yeah it's i did the same and the same thing now, i didn't break fingers fortunately but i kind of you know when you push one back and it's it's yeah that was the end of that <laughs> God, let me go back to taekwondo any day because at least then i know what i'm trying to dodge yeah um you mentioned sport when you're younger as well. Is it something you're, you do? You have time for participating uh, rather than observing? No, I, I think um, it's it's something that I may want to get back into in the future. Um, like I, mm. I play a lot of hurling, so I, I kind of like racket type sports that are fast and intense. Mm. So went through a period of squash, uh, squash leagues. Um, to try and again racket sports it's fast it's intense um but i think in terms of mm. team sports um on the grander scale probably won't be something what i've just substituted is things i can fit around the again fit around the life that i have now is very different to the life i had when i was was when mm. i was younger um so yeah just it's a lot more uh, gym routines yeah. um it's a lot more like mm. things like squash um as well i'm i'm have in mind your your focus on creating balance and integration in different aspects of your life and clearly with empire you're you're very busy on that and and growing that what do you do to counteract that in terms of um hobbies pastimes how do you unwind 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's about balance. I think Particle's great in that we give um, what we call quarterly reboot days. So the whole company basically takes the, the day yeah. off um, to really ultimately unwind and relax and do whatever you know you do to help you do that. So uh, one thing I actually focus on is actually driving. Uh, like I love I love driving, I love cars. I always have since uh, I think it sort of grew up early watching Formula One kind of doing the entrepreneurial, like cleaning cars as a small, as a kid. Um, and I've always been interested mm. in cars all my life. So quite often uh, it's actually just going for like a drive out to the countryside, um, get out into some isolated roads early in the morning and just, um, yeah, just enjoy the, the scenery, the drive. Um, that's kind of what Rip, I'm Ripping the road up. Is that I what you, that's that what far. you really I think. I didn't say that far. You said that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let me ask you it this way. What car is it? Uh, I've always been a, a first model car I ever got when I was a kid was a, was a Porsche 911. So, um, you know, one of the things I've been driving towards in my career has been like, how do I, how do I put myself into a position where I could buy and maintain and own one? So, um, yeah, that's mm. been, the, it's been the one for me. That did our cost. Yeah. And, and they tried several times to come out with derivatives of Guinness. And I don't know that they've succeeded. Um, however, uh, I digress. So, uh, yeah, um, maybe a couple of personal questions in terms of your, your perspective on things. Uh, if you were Minister for Education and you could make one subject mandatory on the secondary curriculum, what would that be and why? I think... Um... You know, I, I kind of think the, the life of sales is uh, often tarnished with the wrong uh, brush. Um, and, I, and I wonder, like, mm. through education, are there ways that we could encourage more people to actually consider a career in sales? Um, because when I was growing up in, in school, it was, it was very simple. It was like, we're going to push you towards being a, a lawyer a doctor or an accountant and I came from a family of accountants so mm. I knew that wasn't for me um, and I wasn't too interested mm. in, in medicine or legal studies either um, so I think like it would be mm. either something around encouraging people to be more entrepreneurial so like there's so much written about like mm. startups now and like it's never been easier to do a startup now as it has like in the past especially in the, in the tech world so like what if we encourage people to do companies like try and create an MVP, try and create a website, try and like build something? I think that could be super interesting. Um, and then I think what builds off from that, I think some level of like, again, like computer science, mm. I think would be super interesting given the direction the world is going. Yeah, no, I, I like that. Uh, I, I've seen some, some transition years that they do in school where if, if they've got a good transitions teacher who's focused on that, they'll do things like, even it's something as simple as starting a tuck shop, something, but gives people a sense of, well, I have to buy, I have to sell, I have to manage cash flow, just even the basics of, of running a business. Um, but you're right, it's hugely inconsistent and it's certainly not mandatory and I would love to see something like that for sure. And, uh, and I think it's mostly, it's mostly they're based... Doing a, No, 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 please go ahead. It's mostly based on the concept of it. 
as well. What's thought like it's not based on mm. actual practical application, and that's like you know that's when mm. you learn a lot more when you've got to go through the situations, you got to go through the scenarios. So like everyone, everyone yeah. knows like oh, cash is king, great. Like but you know yeah. unless you have a business where you're like oh I've got to pay all this stuff and I don't have any money this month. Like that's like yeah. the the best lesson that you'll ever that yeah. you ever get. And I think it's like, how do you make yeah. those sort of experiences even more, um, maybe not the cash flow one, but how do you yeah. encourage people to um, experiment and try things out? And because you know, inevitably a, lots of things yeah. aren't going to work and that's okay, but the one one or two things Ooh. that do work, you know, are usually going to be quite meaningful and will, will help somebody in the world in some way. I remember in school, and this is more by way of saying to celebrate how things have advanced and how much better they are, is when I was in secondary school, there was something like 77 jobs you, you were told you could do. There was literally a leaflet for every job type. And what was more disturbing was they were ranked and there was five levels. And the lowest level was, I'm going to, I, I don't remember exactly, but there were pretty, you know, manual jobs where you didn't need any qualifications for. And then level two might have been a semi-professional job. Threes was then the professional there and you'd have some things in there, like some of the trades I think were level two and then level three up where maybe you could be a photographer, an artist or a design, well maybe even, I don't know, designers exist, certainly not Photoshop ones. There would have been drafts person, that's our drafts, no there wouldn't, they wouldn't have been draftsman, that's what it would have been. And then at the very top it was doctors, lawyers, architects and you actually looked at that and you decided what type of a person you were. Uh, not not at a not at a, um, a conscious level, but you looked at where you fit into the hierarchy. That was the system, and uh, so we've come a long way, and that's to be celebrated. None of that bullshit. For sure. Yeah. Um, so we were talking about yeah the the what would you make mandatory coding? I think is something else you mentioned that is something I think everybody should do because you, you made the point that it's never been easier to start a business, which again, fully subscribe to. You have the world's largest CRM at everybody's fingertips, LinkedIn. You can build a website in, in minutes maybe. Um, there's no excuse. Why do you think more, more people don't do it? Um, I think it's probably because it's just completely out of their comfort zones. Um, and it is hard. It's just like, mm. um, you know, learning, learning a new language at the beginning, like it's going to be very difficult. You're going to feel stupid. You're going to be like, Oh, it's stuck. I don't know how to uh, move from this to, to that. And, um, it's, it's only mm. through like the, again, the iteration, the learning, um, that eventually if you trust the process, you'll get there. Um, I think there's like lots of great tools out there. Like I've used Code Academy in the past. Um, you, know, you can sign up, you can just do self-paced class. It's all about iteration. It's all about like actually applying the skills. And, um, you know, I'm not by any means Ooh. like a, an engineer, but it certainly helped me to empathize more with uh, a lot of the people and that were that we have as customers in terms of what their day-to-day -day is like when they're having to manage code mm. bases 
um, and integrations with different tools. And, you know, I've seen, seen it through that learning, how difficult it can be and, and how we ultimately add value on a particle. What are you seeing in the sales space? What, sorry, what changes have you noticed in the sales space over the last few years that you've been involved that you, you welcome and then also you cast an eye on and kind of think, oh, I'm not so sure about this? Yeah, I think um, there's probably like a few things that are interesting. I mean, as always, like buyers continue to be way more informed uh, than they ever have been before. So, you know, I think by the time they come through and they actually want to speak to a salesperson, they've probably gone through, you know, their process of, I've got a problem. Let me research some solutions to the potential problem. Let me actually define what I might need in that solution. And then let me go purchase it. Like, I think they're getting further and further along that journey before they're willing to interact. So that I think that, I mean, that almost, uh, it almost drives people to like really think about sales as being a, a function of both sales and marketing uh, together. Uh, so we can have that right dialogue, mm. help that customer self-educate. Um, and I think, you know, I think that's one key thing. The, the second is you know, people continue to want to like try the product before they buy the product. Um, so I think like, I think that's a welcome step that people can do that, like free trials, et cetera. And product like growth is being talked about quite a lot, but mm -hmm. I think that's quite an interesting, um, an interesting shift, um, you know, over the last mm. three, four, five years, um, where companies have built very successful businesses off the, the concept of giving people mm. a free trial, see what they value see what people would be willing to pay for uh, and then just growing the business from from there. Mm. Well, I talk to you about that, about the free trial, because I have my concerns. I, I get the, and I understand the attraction in it. My concerns always, and I've had this recently myself with a piece of software. Uh, I'm used to using a particular uh, video editing software and then somebody said, try this, and I look at it, and because I'm, not, I'm just not used to it. There's a huge learning curve. And no doubt if I come through that, it may be better than what I have at the moment. But I was completely put off by that fe feeling stupid because I'm looking at this, how do you do this? How do you get around that? Yeah, I think it's like some of it is going to be case by case, right? Like, it, are we seeing people coming through the free trial that are getting stuck in a particular area? So like being able to identify that mm. and, you know, then ask questions, like, why are they getting stuck there? Like, what could we help? Mm. Like, uh, mm. what could we make more clear? How could we help them through this friction point? So I think there's like a lot of stuff we can do from a product perspective, but then like, there's also things that you can do from a sales perspective. Um, so like quite often we've had customers that are doing a combination of doing more like have a traditional type sales engagement where mm. we've, you know, discovery, things like that, but in parallel, we're speaking to, you know, we're across the, the business, but marketing analytics, development product, um, but typically developers, like the last thing they ever want to do is speak to a salesperson, but they will want to uh, get their hands and actually use the product. So I think it's it's been useful mm. um, to kind of like also help more traditional sales cycles um, and really just to mm. be able to get um, people who, prefer to actually get their hands on the technology rather than speak to salespeople to get them uh, on board and, and really demonstrate through the product how it could be of value to them. 
I'm wondering if there's a halfway house. It would probably depend on the value of the software or depending on the value of the customer, ultimately, is to have it where it's rather than it's a free trial, it's a, it's a trial process whereby they, they have to go through certain learnings as well. So they have to attend a class. Now that can be you know, online, uh, on demand, I should say, or it can be live, but it's like, okay, here, here getting started. And, and, and now, you're, now, now you go ahead and, and implement this. And once you've done that, it ticks off the next bit of the process. So it's that kind of managed process. I've not seen anybody do it. Maybe they are, I'm just not, my eyes are open to it. But I would have thought that would make far more sense because you're also building the relationship with that particular prospect. And you're also learning, really, you're getting into their issues and challenges as you go along, we're in a kind of a demo. You can go so far, but if you had that process, every time you interact with them, you can say, okay, why or how do you plan on using this? What, what challenge are you trying to overcome with this? And, and you're, you're kind of drawing them in. Um, but you might tell me that people are doing that already. I don't know, I just haven't seen it. Yeah, I think there's, there is some things being done already. Like there's a concept of, uh, if you imagine a typical bowling alley, um, where you try to roll the, the ball down mm. to hit all the pins. You know, a lot of people talk about like putting the bumpers up either side. So like we, we kind of create mm. paths that people can go down and we, we make sure there's guardrails in place so they ultimately can get down to the right outcome. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it's an interesting concept of, mm. of potentially mixing the few, but I think in order to make that sustainable, it would probably need to be pretty high, um, pretty high value. Um, software mm. in order to uh, like mix both salespeople and product together because obviously you've got all the overheads of hiring salespeople, mm. training them and so on as well. Unless you were to capture it somewhere that would need to be on demand and then of course you lose the the interrogative element of it so swings and roundabouts yeah. And I think some of the best some of the best things though are, are it's really the questions that you have to ask pretty important thing. So like, yeah, um, and you can't do that if it's on demand. You can't do, it. and it's just trying to help. Like, what are the like? What is the actual problem that we're trying to solve? And yes, they'll have problems they're aware of, mm. but they might have some issues or challenges that you know that are going to come in the next. Once they solve this initial problem, they're going to have this other problem, um, and they're not aware of that yet. But mm. if we can, if we can help guide them and, mm. and that, then I think there's there's value. Mm. Um, value in that and it probably helps people actually start um, mm. and rather than just getting like stuck uh, early on and like oh this, this seems mm. like too big of a chain like to your point with the video editing software it's like I, I know it might be better for me in the longer term but I need mm. to actually get going and do the first few reps uh, so I guess if there's, if there's more content or maybe depending on what the software is people to help uh, get through those first few steps and reps then yeah, I think it could be interesting. We're almost up on time, Rob. A couple of quick uh, questions for you. Desert island. Uh, you're going to be marooned on a desert island. Don't know when you're going to be rescued. What would you take? What one thing would you take with you? Well, hopefully my wife would be there as well. Um, if not, I would take my wife. Um, if she was there already, I'd probably take uh, some good books and a journal. I did, I did say what one thing. You're getting greedy now. <laughs> I'm a salesperson. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you 
dead right. Yeah, we got the rules. I got to take this, this, and this, and this. Bring a whole ship with. Yeah. All right. All right. So then let 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 me just change that ever so slightly. Your house is burning down, and your wife is safe. Uh, if you have any pets, they're safe. I did, you didn't mention children. If you have, they're safe. Um, um, your phone and your computer, all safe. And you have time to run back in and rescue one item in your in your house. What would it be? I've got some nice family photos. They'd definitely be the, the ones I take. And then final question, Rob. Uh, if there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of it to be? I think Perseverance. I like it. Simple yeah. to the point. I think it's just yeah. like things, things like momentum will come and go. Things will be, you know, mm. sometimes they're going to be very easy. Then you, you go to the next stage of it and all of a sudden they get hard. But if you keep showing up and keep getting the reps in, and again, mm. trust, trust the process, you'll get there in the end. Where, where has perseverance been an important element of your story so far? I think it's just like continuing to push yourself and, and learn like we've done, I've done some like marathons, things like that, that I, uh, sometimes I get into some wagers with my, with my father that I probably shouldn't. Um, and one in particular was, uh, you know, it's like, you're, you're too busy. You just don't have enough time to do a marathon. Like don't, don't like just forget about it. So instead of forgetting about it, I mm. took my laptop out and we started looking at the races that were coming up. And, uh, so, there was one coming up in Munich in nine weeks time. Um, and he's like, look, just, mm. just don't. And I was like, actually, what was the fastest time you ran your marathon in? Which was uh, three hours, 30 minutes. And uh, yeah, he, uh, I said, okay, I tell you what, I'm going to buy you a plane ticket and I'll register for this marathon now. And you're going to come over to Munich and I'll see you at the finish line. So uh, the, the, the wager was set and yeah. So a lot of perseverance was needed to, uh, basically go from running uh, like three or four miles at a time uh, to running the full marathon at a pretty decent time. Um, so a lot of perseverance mm. was needed, but uh, thankfully we did, uh, did meet each other at the finish line and I did beat it by just a couple of minutes. Um, you did it uh, under 3.30? Yeah, 3.27 and it was also 26 degrees that... on the day when it was supposed to be the averages at the time of year were like 13 or 14. So. Uh, with my Irish yeah. complexion, I, I feel that was worth an extra point or two. Yeah, that's amazing, Rob. Absolutely amazing. Anybody who understands marathon timings and so on, uh, anything under 3.30 is absolutely amazing. And is your father still doing them? Uh, no, he's not doing them anymore. He, he hung up his uh, running shoes. When he was saying don't do it, was that negative psychology or did he genuinely mean don't do it? Because it worked. If it was negative psychology, it certainly worked. It definitely did work. But he lost the bet, though. Um, but I think... Um, yeah. I don't know. I think he was just probably... You know, he... Yeah. I don't, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Yeah. Because, well, I, I, the reason why I, I, I think that is because it happened to me. And it's a few years ago now, but I was in my early 40s. And... It was February, and the as you know, the marathon in Ireland is in the end of October. And I, my wife had suggested that I take up running as a hobby, and I said, are you joke me? I said, I hated running. And I did, I genuinely hated the idea of running. And she said, yeah, look, you're probably too old anyway. And that was Came it. On. 
eight months later, I crossed the finish line. So, uh, <laughs> so I understand the power of, <laughs> listen, forget it. There's no way you could do this. <laughs> There's nothing more powerful to a certain personality. But it's so true. Like, I think people, like, it was, it was one of the best learnings uh, that I had. I was reading uh, um, You Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins at the same time as well. And he talked about, like, people mm -hmm. have this, like, you know, when people think they've done all they could possibly do, they're probably actually only at 40% of their actual capability. And this, like, really struck me. Mm -hmm. And, like, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, but he had some, you know, an amazing life and all the things that he he achieved uh, during his life particularly when it came to like endurance endurance sports um mm. but yeah so i kind of just kept thinking that and uh it's amazing the mindset shift um that you can have when you think you're you're done you can't run any more miles but actually you, you probably could go on run yeah. 10 15 more miles if you really needed to i would love to add that to school curriculum as well because for certainly for me, it, it teaches you so many things. And what you're saying is one of the most powerful element of, elements of it is that when you think you're done, there's a lot more, you can push yourself to do a lot more when your body doesn't want to just do any more. Or I remember getting to the third, I did 13 miles and it was just in training. So I remember coming back to my front door and I fell in the door. And my son said to me, you know, if you're like this after 13 miles, how are you going to do 26? I said, same way as I got here, one foot in front of the other. And, exactly. and it was true. Like, you can't see it, but if you trust the process, that, that's, and I think that was the message. If you just trust the process, put in the work, it will come. You know, barring injuries and all that kind of stuff. Well, sadly, we're up in time, and I've really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, many more marathons to you, and all the best with your future with Empartico. Uh, sounds like you're on a great trajectory and uh, exciting times ahead for you. Great. Thanks for having me, Paul. It's been a pleasure being here as well.